but listen to this interview and make up your own mind. Uh, very interesting. It's a massive problem uh, in football. And uh, he joins us. His first book was called The Fix. Uh, soccer and organized crime had received international acclaim, but he's written that second book uh, called The Insider's Guide to Match Fixing. I kicked things off by asking Declan how his fascination with match fixing in football began. Well, um, I, I started this from, uh, I did a documentary uh, for Canadian and United States television um, on the links between organized crime in Russia and hockey, uh, i.e. ice hockey, which is our national religion up here in Canada. And I remember meeting the guy who uh, U.S. Congress and the FBI has identified as, quote, head of the Russian mafia. And he was saying how he was at the VVIP box of FIFA at the World Cup final uh, a couple of seats over from the then president, Yao Havelange, and the next president, Sepp Blatter. And I was thinking, crikey, you know, what is this guy doing there? And that was really the beginning of my fascination and, and my interest in the possible links between uh, organized crime and football. Declan, the, the reason we're chatting today, you, you've just published your second book. The first book we, we've yes. actually chatted to you about on the show before as well. But th this one's also on, on, on match fixing in football. But it's, uh, it, it's basically, I mean, it's been described as an academic book for non-academics. And, uh, I mean, the book itself is, is called The Insider's Guide to Match Fixing in Football. There, there's obviously a bit of interest from a South African perspective because there's been some big of stories course, over the last, well should be. the last no, year. No, look, here, here's, here's what it is. It's Freakonomics meets soccer corruption. And... The, the thing is, as, as you know from reading my first book, that's where I infiltrated a, a, an Asian match-fixing gang. They eventually go on to fix South African football uh, friendlies just before the last World Cup. They had very close uh, liaisons with various people in the South African Football Association, as all our listeners know. Um, you know, that, that is, that's the first thing. And the fact of the matter is that I brought out that first book uh, a number of years, two years before the South Africa World Cup, and essentially the football industry ignored it. Uh, the second edition came out at exactly the same time as these guys are walking the halls of power within the South African Football Association. And uh, not to diminish South Africa in any way, but if it were just your country and just your international friendlies that were being fixed, it would be a severe scandal for international football. But what makes it extraordinary is that these guys did similar activities in at least 35 different countries. Uh, what it makes it even more bad, it, you know, worse, excuse my English here, is that they're not the only match-fixing gang. What we're looking at is a revolution, a transformation of international sport where the sports corruption industry has become globalized. So it's now worth the time of organized crime gangsters sitting in Singapore, Hong Kong, Kuala Lumpur, wherever, to fix South African football matches, to fix my own country's matches, Canada, to fix small leagues in Finland, in Slovakia, in Slovenia, Cyprus, Guatemala, Honduras, you know, around the world. These guys have had an enormous impact on international football and international sport. And so the second book is, right, given those Given that revolution, given the transformation of international sport, how does it work? What do they do? Why do the players fix? Is violence used? And it's really an intelligence dossier on how the enemy operates and how they work so that hopefully, if and when South African Football Administration is thoroughly and completely honest and non-corrupt, we, we can start a proper cleanup and a, a proper protection of sport. 
Declan, I'm I'm dumbfounded that I can't get over that this thing is as big as it is. Like, how did it get so out of control without a governing body like FIFA clamping down before it got to this point? Well, I mean, um, as you know, I, I did an interview uh, an hour and a half in person with Sepp Blatter at his headquarters in Zurich. Um, he was surrounded by his, his aide-de-camps uh, in February 2008. And I, and I came in, and I, I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm as straightforward as I possibly can be. I believe that if you want to get your, your interview subjects telling you the truth, you have to be truthful with them. So I walked in. He knew what the interview was about, and he said, Ah, Mr. Hill, you want to speak to me about the A's and match fixers. I've known about them for the last 20 years. Well, that silence that's going on between you and me and our listeners is doesn't that beg a whole series of questions? Why didn't they take activities? Why didn't they push uh, to eliminate these guys far before it's got to this problem? Here's, here's the problem. The same phenomenon which has transformed the music industry, the travel industry, journalism, practically you know any industry that you can think of in the last 10 years is globalization. And the sports corruption industry, in quotation marks, has been transformed by this globalization as well. And, you know, in the same way, we can't turn the clock back from the music industry to 10 years ago and say, all right, you know, we want everyone to buy a CD now. You've got to live with downloading. You've got to live with the Internet. The same thing is hitting sports corruption. So it really behooves football officials in whatever country to wake up to this and to say, right, we've got this fact, we've got this phenomenon, what are we going to do, how are we going to fight against it? And that's what this second book is about. It's about, right, this is how it works, and these are the things that you can change, and much of it is very, very cheap. You know, it doesn't cost more than 100 rand to put a lot of the stuff in, in place, and this will protect sport in a big way. But you, you, you mentioned that, that it's, it's pretty easy to implement, but you also mentioned that Sepp Blatter, in that interview, said he's known about them for 20 years. I, I look at the South African yes. example, where, where FIFA has yes. now come in and said they're handling the, the investigation. Are FIFA taking yes. this thing seriously? Well, I, I, I'm, I think I'm in a privileged position from you and, and your listeners. I, I've actually read the secret documents and the secret dossier of FIFA's first investigation, and I've read all their interviews with the uh, South African football officials and, and administrators. And it, you know, it frankly is a truly shocking story. Um, uh, and I think that uh, football fans across South Africa would be shocked at, at, at what transpired in the spring of 2010 inside the halls and corridors of that power. Uh, you know, of, of the South African Football Association. I'm not, I, I, I strongly emphasize saying that everybody uh, or even most of the officials are guilty, but I'm saying that there was clearly somebody working in cahoots with these fixes, and it's just got to stop. It's got to be a cleanup. Talking of that cleanup, what what is it going to take? You say uh, it's not difficult, and, and it could be something that could cost as little yep. as a hundred rand. What, what what do we need to do as as football lovers globally, not just here in South Africa, in order to stop this? Well, let, I mean, let's let's start with, with South Africa. It's a, it's a circumstance that I'm intimately um, you know aware of and, and, and know the circumstances. The first thing we've got to do is clean up the South African Football Association. I mean, I, I mean that's a given. There's no point in trying to go forward with you've got people inside there that had a business relationship with fixes, either innocently or complicitly. You've got to get it cleaned up. You've got to get people fired. Some people should be, judging from this first report, be charged who they are. That needs to be investigated properly. But it's clear 
that's got to be cleaned out. You've got to clean the stables out. Then let's assume that you've got a clean football association or clean people who have seen the last lot disappear over the horizon and they don't want the same thing to happen to them. Right, what can you do? Well, the first thing you can do is treat professional athletes as professionals. And the first sign of a professional is you, you pay the people on time. You have a fantastic job as one of South Africa's top sports journalists. How would you do your job if I were to tell you, well, that's fantastic. What a wonderful job you've got. Um, we're not going to pay you for the next six months. How would that affect the way you do your job? Now, I'm pretty certain um, that you would do it to the best of your abilities, but you would be coming home every day looking at your family, and, and they'd be saying, well, you know, Dad, you know, where's the pay packet? And you say, oh, well, you know, I, I'm just so happy to have this job, you know, working for South African radio. But, but that's the circumstances of many professional footballers and many professional athletes around the world today. Even in the league like, um, you know, the Spanish League, even the premier division of the Spanish League, there are teams playing Barcelona and Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid, you know, the big guys, and some of those players haven't been paid in over six months. Well, you know, this is an open path to corruption. So the first thing you need to do is, with a football association is just make sure the very basics are paid. And we don't even need to talk about paying people vast salaries. You know, most teams, most leagues, they can't afford what you can for an English Premier League or, you know, the Spanish League. But just what they've promised to pay their players, that would go a massive way to stopping much of the corruption. Not all of it. There's always going to be greedy people out there, but a lot of the corruption could be halted right then and there. What a fascinating interview. Declan Hill, the author of a book called The Insider's Guide to Match Fixing in Football. That was part one. Part two of that interview coming up on the other side uh, of the news uh, between five and six here on SAFM Sports Special. And one of the questions I asked him in that interview as well is that only the smaller teams that are fixing matches. Uh, we'll kick things off uh, in the next hour with that question. Before your news now at five o'clock, let's head back to Newlands to get uh, a bit of the action from Natalie Germanis in that one name tonight between Pakistan and South Africa. Thanks very much, Brad. 87 for 4 is the score at the moment, and we're into 22nd over. South Africa need 132 of 172 deliveries. JP Dermany's at the crease with Jean Callis, and Jean Callis is on 40 at the moment, while JP Dermany is there on 2. Dermany's facing Afridi. Afridi's right arm over the wicket, outside the off stump, played away by Dermany on the offside, down towards the sweeper on the cover boundary, and they're going to take a single, which takes JP up to 3 now. And South Africa, 88 for four. 131 for South Africa needed. 171 balls left. Free just uh, waiting for Shah Callis, who was uh, just about ready. And now he's uh, ready for Afridi with the fine leg up, third man up. Fielders walk in with the inner ring. And it's played away on the offside down towards the point boundary for another single. So Callis will move up to 41. Shida Freedy is into his third over. He has one for nine at the moment. Picked up the wicket of A.B. de Villiers. Bowled for ten. Earlier on we saw Graham Smith making 12 as this ball is played now by J.P. Doney into the offside but there'll be no run. Graham Smith was stumped by Akmal for bowling on Pahafis. Hashimamla was bowled by Janae Khan for 3 from 3. Quentin Akak made 19 from 24. And he was bowled by Bati. 
right now it's a freely to Dumini. He backs away from his stumps, makes some room and plays it down towards the point boundary for another single. So he moves up to four. 90 for four is the score. 22 overs gone. Shahid Afridi has bowled three overs, one for ten. South Africa need 129 from 168 balls. They are chasing 219 to win this first one-day international. Required run rate now is actually just creeped up higher than the achieved run rate. They are going at 4.1, and the required run rate is now creeped up to 4.5. So still not a problem for South Africa, but right now they're 90 for four. That's after 22 overs, chasing 219. It's back to you, Brad. Thank you very much, Natalie. We'll go back to Newlands uh, on the other side of 5 o'clock to get uh, more of that cricket action. Uh, just some other news coming through on the wires. Japan head coach Eddie Jones has been released from hospital uh, after nearly 40 days uh, after suffering a stroke while preparing his squad for their clash against the All Blacks. The 53-year-old Australian former Brumbies Wallabies coach uh, left the Tokyo hospital yesterday. Uh, that's according to the Japan Football Rugby Union. Uh, he was also involved in the 20... 20- 2007. I was trying to think what year it was that we won the World Cup with Jake White. Uh, he was uh, working alongside Jake White when we won that World Cup as well. Uh, and then, yeah, just some football action that's taking place. The under-17 ladies, South African under-17 ladies, uh, in an all-important qualifier, uh, currently trailing three goals to one, six-three on aggregate. So as it stands now, and they are in added on time as well. So as it stands now, they do not qualify for the World Cup. So not a great result uh, for our juniors there. Heading up to 5 o'clock, and Musa has got your news in just a moment. Let me give you that quiz question once again if you want to have a stab at it. It's got to do with the South African Open Golf. I want to know which South African uh, has won the most titles at the SA Open. Who was it? And uh, I'll give you bonus points if you can tell me how many titles he has won. How many titles uh, has the most... Uh, well, how many? Or well, who has won the most titles at the SA Open, rather? SMS 34701. Those SMSs are charged at 2 and You can also tweet us at SAFMSS. Right now it is 5 o'clock and time for your news on South Africa's news and information leader. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Journalists asked to stay out of politics and nuclear deal prevents more Iranian oil. Good afternoon. The SA National Editors Forum has asked journalists to stand as candidates for political parties to resign. CNFC's resignation should t- take place regardless of whether the candidate will or will not be guaranteed a seat after an election. CNF has also said that 192 complaints against the media were received by the press council between August 16th and November 15th. Mail and Guardian editor Angela Quinto has been elected as CNF's new Secretary General. Six people have died in an accident involving three cars near Melmoth in northern KwaZulu-Natal. Police say the driver of a car tried to overtake two vehicles at a bench but lost control, crashing into two oncoming cars. Provincial Transport spokesperson Kwanele Ngelani says the recent spate of accidents is shocking. Fourteen people were killed when a taxi crashed into a stationary truck at Nkomas on Friday. Ngelani has called on motorists to be extra vigilant. It is alleged that the Toyota Corolla was trying to overtake on a sharp bank, uh, overtaking two vehicles, uh, a VW Polo and a Volvo, at the same time. Six people died uh, on the scene, uh, and other four who sustained injuries were taken to Omakwaza Hospital. The MEC would like uh, to send his condolences 
to all the families who lost their loved ones in this accident, but also we shall speed the recovery uh, for those who are hospitalized. The mother of eight-year-old Shafika Bajman, who has been found murdered at Union Dal in the Karoo, says the man accused of a killing is well known to the family. Shafika's body was found at a house in Lionville with the legs bound with a piece of clothing. A 31-year-old man is expected to appear in court tomorrow. Mlamli Mneli reports. Shafika's mother, 28-year-old Varity Bajman, says her first child was a well-mannered girl and that she expected so much from her. She says, little did she know that sending her to fetch money from a friend would be the last time she saw her alive. She says the suspected murderer was treated more like a member of the family. Batman says she is still too short to internalize what has happened. She says she relies on the help of the community for better arrangements as no one in the family is currently employed. The search is on for the owners of the dog that was rescued from Kimberley's big hole yesterday afternoon. The canine is recovering at a local vet. NSPCA spokesperson Mario van der Westenhuizen says the dog is doing well, even though it is still weak from its ordeal. The dog fell into the hole about a week ago and survived by resting on a small ledge, van der Westenhuizen explains. Yes, we took it to a vet yesterday afternoon, and the vet immediately um, put a drip on it. But this morning, we're doing quite all right. Um, I don't think there will be a problem. She's a bit weak at the moment. I think it's more tiredness, but she's doing all right. Um, she's all right at the moment, yeah. The nuclear deal signed between Iran and six world powers today will not allow any more uranium oil into the market, but it does freeze U.S. plans for deeper cuts to uranium crude exports. The agreement will curb Iran's nuclear program in exchange for limited sanctions relief. U.S. and EU sanctions have slashed Iran's oil exports from 2.5 million barrels per day to around 1 million barrels per day. Less crude from Iran will increase pressure on Saudi Arabia to squeeze more out of oil fields that are already pumping at record levels. Iran has lost more than 800 billion rand since the beginning of 2012 because of lost oil sales. Recapping the top story, the SA National Editors Forum has asked journalists who stand as candidates for political parties to resign. For SAFM News, I'm Anne Musa, your next news update at 6. Sports special. Into the final hour of the show we go. Uh, SAFM Sports Special right here on SAFM South Africa's news and information leader 104 to 107 FM. Uh, looking at that rugby score during the news between New Zealand and Ireland, this will be a bit of an upset uh, to say the least. 22-7 is what the Irish lead right now. It's five minutes into the second half. Still a long way to go. Uh, and if there's any side that can come back from that sort of deficit, it is the All Blacks and they'll be hoping uh, that they can. So far on uh, an unbeaten run this season, I think they're hoping to make it 13 out of 13, uh, or is this their 14th game of the season? Can't remember the exact number, but they do have a 100% record going into this match, and it is their last of the season. So uh, a win here will see them unbeaten once again in 20. 13. So, uh, interestingly enough, uh, the Irish side playing fantastic rugby right now, too. Just looking at uh, some golf news, the South African Open has wrapped up at the Glendower Golf Club on the East Rand of Johannesburg, and it was Morton Oram Madsen 
uh, from Denmark who claimed the title by two strokes. 19 under is what the Dane finished on. Tied for second, South Africa's J.B. Kruger and Henny Otto and Marco Crespi, who was uh, top of the leaderboard for the first couple of rounds. He ended up tied for fourth, along with Charles Swatzel on 16 under. Uh, Henny Otto would be very disappointed. At one stage, he was 20 under, which is uh, a stroke better than what uh, Madsen won the championship on. Uh, but he dropped three shots through 15 and 16, and then parred 17 and 18 uh, to finish tied for second. I think he will be very disappointed. In the World Cup of Golf at the Royal Melbourne, in Australia, Jason Day ended up winning the individual uh, t- tournament, and he helped Australia to the title, uh, along with uh, his teammate. They ended up cleaning up. Big, big victory for Australia in that World Cup of Golf. So congratulations to Jason Day as well. Just to give you a couple of football scores, this is amazing. Manchester City, if you're a Tottenham Hotspur fan, uh, block your ears now because you're not going to want to hear this. Uh, There's still 20 minutes to go in this match, and Manchester City leading by five goals to nil. Can you believe it? That is an absolute thumping. Uh, 20 minutes to go. I wouldn't want to be uh, in that Tottenham Hotspur change room at the end of this one. I can tell you Andre villas Boas is going to give them a proper lashing. Absolutely. Uh, and then looking at uh, the scores of the games that are happening here in South Africa right now. Amazulu uh, against Free State Stars. Amazulu leading by one goal to nil. Golden Arrows 2-1 up over Maritzburg United. And the game that we were going to cover today, unfortunately, our commentator falling ill, so unfortunately no coverage from the old Peter Macabre Stadium. Polokwane City 3-0 up against the University of Pretoria. Uh, so, yeah, good win for... Or if it stays like that, it'll be a good win for the team from Polokwane City, the newbies in the AFSA Premiership this season as well. A little bit earlier on today, Manny Pacquiao beat Brandon Rios on points in Macau. Uh, that was... Uh, for the WBO International Welterweight title, and it was a very one-sided affair. The judges scored at 120 to 108, 119 to 109, and 118 to 110. And uh, to be honest, uh, Rios is not in that fight at all. Manny Pacquiao, very dominant performance, and good to see him coming back uh, from that. Our quiz question, by the way, I wanted to know which South African has won the most SA Open titles. You can SMS your answer to 34701. I'll give you some of the guesses in a short while. You can also tweet your answer, by the way, to at SAFMSS. And then just for an added bonus, if you can tell me how many titles he's won, uh, send those SMSs now, 34701. Let's head back to Newlands for a quick cricket update from Natalie Jamanis. Natalie, what is the latest? All right now, South Africa, 109 for four, up to 25 overs. So they've just reached the halfway mark. At the same stage, Pakistan was 74 for three. So well ahead of what Pakistan were, but they had such a good finish with that wonderful partnership between Bharti and Anwar Ali. Right now, we're seeing a four being hit through the offside by Jacques Callis, who's moved one short of a half century. He's on to 49 right now. South Africa need 106 from 149 deliveries. JP Dermany is there with him still, and he is on 18 at the moment, South Africa, 113 for four. So uh, right now, Brad, uh, run rate required is just about the same as what they're going at. So things are, are going well for South Africa. They'll be pretty happy with how things are. And uh, Jean Callis is on 49. Of course, the crowd is hoping that he'll get to his half century. And he does. He takes a single through the leg side. And he will bring up what is his 86th half century, Brad. Natalie, I'm amazed at Jacques Callas. He's back in the fold, and it seems like he was never gone. 
It's unbelievable. He really does look very comfortable. It does help, of course, coming back in front of your home crowd. A very appreciative crowd. Very good to see him back. But he does look very comfortable at the crease. He, it's, it's not that he hasn't played any limited overs cricket. He has played in the IPL. So he did uh, um, have an opportunity to play in the shorter formats of the game. And, of course, being involved in the test side as well. Uh, but it's, it's unfortunate that South Africa didn't have Jacques Callis available for that Champions Trophy. I think he could have made quite a big difference. He adds a calmness to the side. And, of course, he's got the added bonus of being the bowler as well. So it's great to see him back, and he certainly looks very comfortable at the crease. Yeah, Natalie, you, you know more about uh, what these guys' schedules are like than I do. You mentioned he played in the IPL. That, that wasn't just yesterday. It was quite a while ago. What would someone like Jacques Callis have been doing over the last sort of few weeks, month, to, to sort of just stay in, in form? Because it looks like he hasn't stopped playing. He's just in such, he's so fluid. I'd like to know probably two words, playing golf. <laughs> That's probably a lot of what he would have been doing. But he would have been spending some time in the nets, no doubt, definitely in the gym. Uh, Jacques Callis and Graham Smith, in fact, have been keeping pretty slim and trim, and both have lost a little bit of weight. And they're look, certainly looking after themselves. They're getting to an age, both of them, when they have to do that. But as I'm speaking to you, this ball has just gone through Jacques Callis. He cannot believe that it has gone through him, and he's been bowled for 50 so a fantastic delivery by Anwar Ali. Uh, Jacques Callas stood there for a moment before he started making his way back to the dressing room. But uh, that is a superb effort by Anwar Ali. And unfortunately, as we're speaking to you, Brad, about Callas, he has to make his way back to 50 off 71. Yeah, thank you very much, Natalie. Let's not do that again. That was a classic case of the commentator's curse. We'll catch up with you uh, in a short while to uh, follow up on that run chase that uh, South Africa uh, is involved in right now down in Cape Town. And staying in Cape Town, uh, last week the South Africa or the Sports Science Institute of South Africa uh, had uh, put on a summit. It was a performance leadership summit, and it's great to have Dr. Ross Tucker uh, on the show once again. Ross, thank you for joining us here on SAFM Sports Special. Really do appreciate your time. No, thank you for having me. It was good to chat. Ross, I just wanted to touch base following on the summit that took place earlier this week. Uh, it, it was I, I was following the tweets. I didn't know too much about it. I was following it on, on, on social media from, from Johannesburg. But it looked like a very, very interesting program. Tell me a little bit about it. It's the first time it's happened. Tell me a little bit about how it came about. Yeah, it was a, the target was a concentrated summit on sports performance. And so we put together fairly rapidly. I think next time we'll do it a little bit more uh, gradually. We'll give people some time. But fairly quickly, we managed to pull together some amazing speakers from South African sports to just share some of their insights and experiences around the management, the science, the coaching of elite athletes. Because we have such an appetite in this country for this kind of information. There are so many people who unfortunately aren't full-time employed, mostly they're volunteers, but they're working in sport, whether it's at schools, in gyms, clubs, federations, and there's no opportunity for these people to learn. And so the idea was, let's have two days of wall-to-wall high-performance discussions and conversations. And that's exactly what happened. I think it was a huge success, and I'm looking forward to hopefully doing it again in the future. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see who, who you had speaking. You were obviously one of the speakers. You were talking about sports science and sports sense, applying science to performance. But you also had someone who's been at the top of his game for a long, long time, Ernst van Dijk, who we've spoken to here on the show. And, and I really enjoy Ernst sort of just his, his take on things. He's, he's very cool, calm, and collected. But I think he has got a lot to offer with regards to, to staying at the top level for so long. Tell us a little bit about what he, what, what he imparted on the, on, on the attendees. Well, he kicked us off on Thursday morning with the first presentation, and it was awesome because 
it's motivational and instructional because obviously he's got this amazing story and he shared that. But he also shared some ideas around exactly how he's managed to succeed despite, and this is symptomatic of many sports in this country, the lack of support that maybe a professional athlete should be getting. And so he's got a very pragmatic approach to how he's run his career. He is, uh, he talks of it as if it's a business. He has costs, he has expenses and income. And so he kicked us off talking a little bit about that. And I, like you, I, f- I find him to be an incredibly sensible person. He's got really good insights. He's the kind of guy who we should really be looking at investing in because one day when he hangs up the, the wheelchair, as it were, or the hand cycle, he's the kind of guy who needs to run and make the decisions for the next generation. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you 100%. And it, it's interesting you, you mentioned that about Ernst because that's one of the things that I get from him too. And, and, and do you think that should be applied to, to, to all sporting code and all sportsmen is that they need to really see their career as a business? Uh, I, I mean, I think of, of some of the sports stars we've got in this country who are fantastically talented. They are just unbelievable. But they almost don't take themselves serious. Yeah, and I think that's... I think it's different situations, different circumstances per situation. But... I think that in general we are just maybe one or two generations behind in where we need to be professionally, in other words, how we manage the sport. Talent-wise, it's there in terms of extracting that talent, managing that talent, and then the way that those athletes manage themselves. I think that's something, well, I hope, that in, in one or two generations continues to improve. Yeah, I mean, talent, we, we are overflowing here in South Africa. There's no, no two ways about it. Some of the other speakers uh, at the summit this weekend, who are, who are you really impressed with? Well, two in particular. Um, we had a guy out from the United States by the name of David Epstein. He's actually a journalist who used to work for Sports Illustrated in New York, and he's now left them, but he's recently just written a book called The Sports Gene. And he, he has one of the most incredible collections of insight that you will ever find. He, he can talk about why Jamaicans and Kenyans are the world's best runners. He can talk about why the United States produces American football players rather than sprinters. Everything you can think about in terms of sport, talent, identification. And so he gave a few presentations at the summit, and it was extremely interesting. I mean, the kind of guy who I, I know will have to get back by popular demand. And then the second person that I am always blown away by is a guy by the name of Roger Barrow, who's actually the high-performance manager for South African rowing. And he was the mastermind behind that gold medal that we won in London in the lightweight four. And that was a medal that he planned, well, not specifically the medal, but the program was something that he built after the Beijing Olympics. And he set up a high-performance center for rowing up at Pretoria in collaboration with the university and their HBC. And over the last four years, he's built this unbelievable system. It's just, and when you hear him speak, there's, there's a clarity of thought and an authority that is just unparalleled in my experience in South African sports. This is a man who really, I think, Corporate sponsors should back because he is is one of the most insightful and clear-thinking individuals that you'll find in sports. And so he was perhaps, for me, one of the highlights of the summit. That, that sounds sounds amazing, and, and it's interesting you, you mentioned rowing in South Africa. I mean, they are a, a small federation, but if you look at the results that they're achieving, and it's it's through efforts uh, like that from from Roger Barrow as well. There, there are others. I mean, in this in this country, Ross, you you deal with a, a lot of sports federations, and and there are others that are are, are pockets of excellence, and. I'm sure you, you, you sort of, that's the plan with the summit is to get more of those guys out in front of as many people as possible to almost allow them to bottle their success formula so that we can get it out to the other federations that are maybe struggling a bit. I mean, unfortunately, the reality is that everyone 
when it comes to resources, is struggling. Even even Roger Barrow, they are sitting with limited funds. Earlier this year, they didn't even know if they could go to a World Cup. Having won an Olympic gold medal, they didn't even know if they'd compete internationally. That's the situation. But what the what needs to happen is that we've got so many people with great ideas and even more than that, this amazing passion for sport. We just need to expose each of those to three new ideas from other people who've succeeded, and I'm sure that we'll be able to exponentially grow what we can do. And by doing that, then, then what I, I would call the intellectual capital, the all the collective knowledge within South African sport. Let's spread it. Let's share it. Because what made rowing successful is the same thing that can make cycling and kayaking and athletics successful. And if we can link those people together, then we can win more medals without necessarily spending more money. And that's where we need to look. Ross, in in your experience, do you find that the sort of heads and, and, and the people involved in making these decisions at the different federations communicate with each other, or do they operate in isolation and don't really touch base with the other guys who are successful to sort of pick their brain and, and maybe get good ideas from them? No, unfortunately, it's, it's, the, it's the latter, that they don't cooperate too much. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One of them is just that they are somewhat parochial and they don't collaborate because that's just not... I think it's not human nature sometimes to do that. But it, it, particularly in South Africa, we have the situation where everyone's a volunteer. And so I've, as you mentioned, I've been lucky to work with quite a few of these high-performance managers. They are so under-resourced that they literally cannot find the time to look up and look out over the horizon. It's literally step by step by step. And so we fall into a mindset of doing the things that are urgent and not the things that are important. And the important things are being able to communicate with others, collaborate with others who have achieved success. And we don't do that because we haven't built a system that allows that to happen. That's the biggest problem. Fantastic. Ross Tucker uh, telling to us about the Performance uh, Leadership Summit, the first one that took place down uh, at the Sports Science Institute of Southern Africa this week in Cape Town. Ross, uh, thank you once again for your time. Really do appreciate it. It's always great to catch up and uh, find out what you guys are up to down there in Cape Town. I think you do some great work. Well done. Thank you very much. Well, good to chat to you. Cheers. Dr. Ross Tucker on SAFM Sports Special. Interesting to see what is going on in the different federations and high-performance sort of programs of different sporting codes in South Africa. Uh, let's hope they can work together and learn from each other's successes and, and let's build South African sport to where it should be. Let's be honest, we have some fantastic, fantastic sports people in this country uh, doing some great things. And uh, as Dr. Ross Tucker says, uh, resources what it boils down to and if we can uh, sort of spread ourselves as well as we can we can definitely put in some world class performances we